Hi again, everybody, moms and dads, boys and girls. Welcome to the chatter. Colleen, this is number... 96. Can you believe it? I just peeked at your paper. I I thought you always had those committed to memory, but... uh, I I do as soon as I look at your paper. (laughs) Father Chris Podaski's in the house, along with uh, two guys we haven't seen in four months. Where you guys been? Greater and lesser. Brad and Brad. Say hi. Hi. No head mind. Hi. Chasing children. That's what we've been doing. Busy. (laughs) <laughs> Let's get started. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Remember, O oh, most gracious Virgin Mary, Mary that, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions. But in, in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It is good to be back. It is good to be back. You know, it's the end of August, and the kids are back in school. It kind of feels like everything's going to get back into a regular groove. I hope so. This will air, uh, what, this is Labor Day weekend, isn't Labor it? Labor Day weekend, So yeah. we'll uh, get that going. Miller, it was good being out at your place for a couple. I should have just stayed the whole weekend. Yeah, you should have. <laughs> you, you were a great show out in Cascade. I think you had the supplies for it. <laughs> the corn was good. Corn was good. Corn was good. Good to see all your family there, Brad. Yeah, we had a good time. We look forward to that every year. So It uh, was a population shift out in uh, Cascade with the Miller and the Markham family. Yep. Father Chris Podaski's in the house. What what nor- notoriety with the uh, with the, the mass series that you did during the month of July, Father? But before we get started, uh, answer the question: Who are you really? What were you before? What did you do? And what did you think? How did you come to Dubuque? How did I come to Dyersville? I'm actually yeah. in Dyersville, yeah. the Basilica there, and the four parishes around it. Um, off, um, I grew up in Traer, Iowa. Um, which I'm sure that's instantly not recognizable by almost everybody who listens to this, um, which is small town, 1,500 people, 25 miles south of Waterloo. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, all Czech background. Um, yeah. Both I thought sides. it was background Czech. Is background it Czech, Czech? Background? Well, no, the, <laughs> that's, that's what they do with me every place I go. Um, <laughs> that was a story back in college, Father, about the guy dating the Czech girl, and he went home for Christmas, but his parents didn't accept checks? Yes. Oh, my goodness. What a groaner. Yeah, there, there's, there, there are worse ones than that. <laughs> about, about, yeah, two guys, a, a Czech and a German, out, and both were eaten by an individual bear, and they said, which one is the Czech? And, of course, the Czech is in the mail. Uh, oh, jeepers. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, the value of those jokes are the groans out there. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no. The more, bigger the groan, the more the better they are to tell. So if you're looking uh, for a priest with a sense of humor, Dyersville's your location. <laughs> or somebody you can point at and laugh. Yeah. Yeah, so we're in, we're in Traer, yeah, which I is grew, where we got off track. Yes, grew up in Traer. Um, got my call to seminary when I was a senior in high school. Went to a one-day retreat and, and kind of figured things out and never looked back. Uh, so I went to Loris. For four years, back in the 90s, mm-hmm. um, Dubuque was a very different place then, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> I come mm-hmm. to, I kind of went to Loris then and kind of didn't really go back to Dubuque a lot in the last, you know, 30 years. And it's a very different place now. It is, yeah. Dubuque mm-hmm. has changed a lot. Um, went to seminary in Baltimore. Uh, I did take a couple years off and then finished. I, I was ordained in 01. 
the class of the new millennium. Uh, and then, so I've been a priest now for 22 years, and I've served all over the all over the Archdiocese of Dubuque. I've been in Mason City and Waterloo and Wright County and Cedar Rapids for 12 years, and uh, now I'm presently in Dyersville. So um, the the phrase is kicked around the John Paul II priest. Would you consider yourself that? category if if there is such a category well if there is such a category i, I would have to be because i mean he was pope most of my life But did he have an influence mm-hmm. oh sure absolutely absolutely um i can't imagine doing marriage prep without uh, his theology of the body stuff is so mm-hmm. heavily influenced everything i do when i do marriage prep um, those wednesday audiences for how long well, he did. The, I mean, he did those. It was like, was that a three-year Wednesday audience thing? I had think to be. Had to at be at least three, three if not five. Um, I know that those have all been compiled. The theology, all those Wednesday audiences compiled in a book. And of course, if you're more interested in theology, body, read Christopher West, and there's others out there who've done great things with that. But no, I, and and not just that. Um, there's so many other things, though, the, things that I'm not as familiar with, like the faith and reason things that all started with John Paul II. Um, the Veritatis Splendor, the morality things. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. I remember when I was going to seminary, those were those were very big issues as they're teaching us theology and perhaps struggling sometimes with matching what he was asking them to do. And you said you got the call at Loris College. How did you hear it? What was that like? Oh, I like? got the call in high school. Before, in high school? Before, my senior year of high school before I went. I was signed up to go to Iowa State. And I went. I grew up a Hawkeye fan, so I always say, "By the grace of God, I did not go to Iowa State. <laughs> uh, I didn't go to Iowa either. I went well, to Well, there goes half our audience. Yeah, right I understand now. that. I understand. You got a friendly room here. It, at well, least, so. it, it's not Iowa. Iowa State. If you don't poke fun at each other, you know, <laughs> that's, exactly. Uh, um, so but, you're a senior in high school, and you got a call. And how did you know? And what was like? Oh, I, like I say, I went to a one day retreat with a very charismatic priest, and I'd been praying free, quietly as teenagers do, but just asking god what do you want me to do and then of course especially as a senior in high school on this one day retreat uh, we, we ended up with some quiet time toward the end of the day and i just prayed the entire 10 minutes what do you want me to do i'll do what you want and the priest got up and first he commented that we actually prayed well we're iowa teenagers you told us to pray and we did he's used to working with kids in chicago and st louis oh, right. where that didn't always happen but then the next thing very charismatic guy said somebody in here is being called to be a priest and it hit me like a he load. said what somebody in here is being called to be a priest and i i am not really a gut reaction guy but gut heart mind i've never had an experience like this said yes that's it scared the crap out of me so do you um, think he was huh. fishing and just projecting that or i don't know it doesn't have... matter and god used it yeah. um because i like i say i was signed up to go to iowa state i was going to do some form of engineering and i went to loris instead and i never looked back um yeah I couldn't look back. I would have been miserable. So. And you said you were in Loris four years. You went four to years. Baltimore for a for, seminary. Did Baltimore two years in Baltimore? Like I say, took a year off. Then did a pastoral year, kind of worked, and then did my final two years and got ordained. And how's Dubuque changed? Not to dwell on Dubuque. But oh, you're, you're here. You, 30, anybody who's been around downtown later. Dubuque. I mean, compared to the early '90s when there were all these broken down warehouses, mm-hmm. and you just didn't go down. There was no reason to go to downtown Dubuque. Literally, mm-hmm. there was no reason to go down to, to downtown Dubuque. And now it's the center of yuppiedom. Yeah, the Millwork District totally redone. Oh, the um, Millwork, even around the cathedral with the coffee houses mm-hmm. and the restaurants, mm-hmm. and yeah. mm-hmm. there's, and that doesn't even touch the mall area that they put out by the casino riverboat thing mm-hmm. and the new riverboat uh, museum, and none of that was there when mm-hmm. I was at Loris. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Are we going to get signs around Colleen? You know, they got the Hill District and the Jackson Park District. Uh, is there going to be a sign now that says Yuppie Dumb? Yep. They should. Yeah. <laughs> they should because you're right. My office for Mary's Inn is down in the Millwork District, and that is exactly right. Um, I think all of those apartments are rented, and I think everybody has a dog. Oh, like, really? You see everybody yeah. walking their dogs, and they all have their latte. So and, well, their and, and they've they've torn down buildings and made marinas and parks down there where they didn't exist before. I just discovered some of those the other day, and that doesn't even count what UD how UD has expanded and changed up on the hill. Sure, yeah, and how it's the it's the city has flopped out on Highway 20 to the west. I mean, the whole city is mm-hmm. like I say, you disappear from 20 years and come back. You don't you don't know where you are anymore. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's um, right. Yeah, the West, um, West Technology, no, what's it called? The Western Commercial Park. Yeah. Um, but then the South Technology Park, I, I mean, it really has changed. Dubuque really has changed. Yeah. The Northwest the Arterial was new. That was the new road when I was at Loris. And mm. now they've had to redo parts of it. Yeah. Right? Because it's that old. My wife's family's from Cedar Rapids, and they said they just roll up your windows and lock the doors when you drive through Dubuque because they drove through in the 90s. Yeah. You know, and then she ended up marrying a guy <laughs> from there. So, and yeah. now she lives here. So. <laughs> Got through the locked door. Yeah, and I, I know they're trying to get it to go north um, in mm-hmm. downtown Dubuque. They're trying to slowly push that now north, but there was just a big article about that. They're mm-hmm. trying to redo the old brewery on the north end. Yeah. Oh, we were just huh. at Copper Kettle for supper last night, and you can't even drive on that part of Jackson because the building is dangerous. It's falling kind of falling down. down. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they are going to work on the central corridor, so they're trying to kind of reduce some of those um, business fronts and yeah. Mm-hmm. I keep envisioning Quasimodo on top of the brewery throwing bricks down. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our guest is Father Chris Podaski. He's uh, from Traer. And uh, how long out in Dyersville now? How is it a year or two? I've been there a year. Just a year. Just over a year. So is the polish still shining out there? They still love you? On me or them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, those five parishes are fantastic. They're tremendous history. Anybody who hasn't been in the five parishes of, of those five, with the so Basilica in Dyersville. It's the Basilica. And then, of course, you have um, St. Boniface, which is the oldest, I think, out of them all. Uh, just to the north, uh, St. Boniface in New Vienna and St. Peter and Paul in Petersburg, just to the mm-hmm. west of that. And straight west of Dyersville is Earlville and St. Joseph's. And straight south of Dyersville is Worthington, St. Paul's. And those have to be five of the most beautiful churches anywhere in the world. All five of the churches are lovely. Mm-hmm. All five of the Four of them in very similar architectural styles. Earlville's, and a lot of people don't, even the Earlville people, don't, they end up comparing themselves, and they shouldn't because their architecture style, their they are a mission revivalist architecture with beautiful brickwork on the outside and just a lovely little simple church on the inside. All five of them are, are wonderful churches. Um, so we wanted to talk about something because everybody else went on vacation this summer, but you didn't. In July, you put five shows on. Shows. Shows. It's how you think Homilies. <laughs> what, 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 what would you call them? Five episodes. Um uh, Classes more classes on Sunday afternoon at three o'clock. What else are you doing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> tell us about that. What you call these a series of classes, and mm-hmm. you had an idea at the outset. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, in discussions with with one of the Brads here, the lesser Brad, the lesser is that yeah. what he's? This Brad is the lesser. lesser. This is the greater. it's an age thing. It has nothing oh, to no, do I, with. Uh, I understand <laughs> that. 
Um, I love that he always has I'm, to explain it. Well, I'm embarrassed <laughs> of it. I'm embarrassed of being called the greater. So. <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> but in discussions with one of the, bra- it just it's just dawned on me, especially with, you know, a lot of, uh, well, some church controversy with different liturgical documents over the last several years and, of course, more recent ones and kind of putting the pinch on certain groups of people who really like traditional uh, liturgy or, you know, or traditional elements of liturgy and certainly high reverence and all these things. Um, but in those discussions with Brad, it's just what what's occurred to me is that I think our biggest problem isn't doctrine and dogma. Um Sometimes that's how these discussions are going, is that they're trying to change doctrine and dogma, or it's not even necessarily rubric. And I know some people will disagree with that, but I don't think the real issue is rubric. I really think the issue is culture, mm-hmm. that it, it's about how we do things and that milieu and how we process things, that, um, that what's really changed inside the church, and we can certainly say that outside the church, we talk about the cultural revolution of the mm-hmm. 60s and the 70s, yeah. And 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 how culture has continued to morph anti-God in the secular world, but I think we can certainly say the church has a different culture now interiorly in many parishes than would be true. Uh, say if you went to a place where they do use the 1962 books, that the biggest difference isn't so much rubric or doctrine or dogma; it's culture. So, Father, for the Catholics that don't quite get that rubric, what's a rubric? A rubric. I'm sorry. Rubric comes from the word. In Latin for red. red, and and the expression is always when you do, uh, when you follow liturgical books with it, which tell you how to pray mass or sacraments, you're supposed to say the words in black and you do the words in red. The words in red are the actions, and so when I talk about the rubrics, those are the words that tell you what to do, how to what you're supposed to be doing at mass. And the truth is, but this does play into what I was just talking about. None of the rubrics, regardless of the book you're using, even though the books of 1962 were more specific. Even there, none of the books ever laid out exactly how you do everything. It was always a culture around that that informed this is how you do it. Um, there was a there was a culture and a way of going about things that when because there were always times you kind of needed to as it were fill in the blank. You know, it told you you need to do this and this, and the question could be, well, then how do you do that? There was a culture around that. So who's driving the culture, or what's driving the culture? Well, where? <laughs> well, if uh, only in your first-hand experience, if you're saying the rubrics don't, they're not explicit. They don't tell you exactly well, what to do, and it's driven by the culture. Sure, the Latin so Rite had its own culture, okay. had its own interior culture for centuries. The Latin Rite had its own interior culture, and this is true. This is why I did this class. Actually, we're kind of getting to the roots of it. This is true throughout salvation history. I mean, we can certainly say the Jews two thousand years ago had their own interior culture about how they did things, and not just what they did, but how they did them. And so, this is why I, I did this this class on the mass as culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I went backwards, and that, so we could kind of go forward, bring it up to the present day, and just show. Uh, how much culture is involved with what we do in the Mass. Because the first two classes were about the the two base cultures through which God gave us revelation. And that those cultures themselves are actually part of the revelation. You can't hardly yank divine revelation out of the ancient Semitic covenant culture or out of the first century Jewish culture. I mean, and and uh, because if you do, you won't really understand what 
what he what's trying to be said there we we all know this you have to drop a language back into its culture to really understand what they're trying to say so that those cultures themselves are actually part of divine revelation we don't necessarily think of it that way but that's true this is actually in many ways what sacred tradition is as well sacred tradition is a culture you know a way of thinking about things this is how you understand the scriptures you drop them back into the tradition or the culture from which they came and then you understand how they're to be interpreted um and that can involve obviously many things sure um uh give some background now you hit on two cultures the ancient semitic yes. and the uh jewish culture defined in time and persona well, sure who, who those two cultures we got a minute and a half father a minute and a, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> don't use verbs yeah, just yeah, yeah. yeah piece of cake yeah no the ancient semitic covenant culture which scott hahn if you study scott hahn stuff would be very but talking about the whole covenant theology and how the ancient semitic world thought of everything as covenants and oaths and covenant oaths and and family relationships everything was family relationships based on covenants so who are some of the so abraham characters? moses this is all the old testament figures this is how they process noah, the world. adam no noah going right the whole old testament just presume actually presumes this it never explains it it presumes it and that goes right into the first century Jewish Jewish Semitic culture, which would be part of this. They would be coming out of. I mean, if you read, it's actually hard to read Saint Paul without understanding this. He is a covenant theologian mm -hmm. coming out with his rabbinic understanding of the Old Testament. But then that yeah, so that whole first century milieu. But then it gets very specific because it's really that first century Jewish culture with the temple as when, that our Lord walked into only existed for about two hundred years. Sure. From the time that the Maccabees got their freedom until the fall, until 70 A.D. when the temple came down, it's this very narrow window of that first century Jewish culture and what that what that was and what was their experience of it. You're the first priest ever to summarize 4,000 years in a minute and a half. <laughs> Father Chris Podaski is in the house today, and we're going to talk more about the uh, July series of yes. classes in the summer of 2023, right after these announcements. Hi again, we're back in the studio with Father Chris Podaski. We're on episode 96. This will air at uh, Labor Day, 2023, Colleen. Yeah, segment one was very fascinating, talking about the culture. We're with uh, Father Chris Podaski, talking a little bit about the series that he gave over this uh, summer, this um, last month, I guess, the July. Sundays in July. Um, and before we continue on, we do want to thank our sponsor, Hotworks. Yes. Over on Holiday Drive. Holiday with two L's. Two L's. And I want all of the people listening knowing that was certainly my intention. It was not a no. air of yeah. commission. Yes. It was we know. omission. Yes, yes. <laughs> so anyway, so when we dropped off at the first segment, um, Father Chris was talking. Oh, do you go by Father Chris or Father Podesky? Usually Father Chris because people can't get their tongues around Father Podesky. <laughs> you guys have done very well. Yeah. <laughs> that's the American don't way to Don't ask me how to spell it, though, Father. No. Well, that's, that's the American way to say it. You ignore the letters that you don't think should be there, and you kind of go through it. That, yeah. the Podesky is the American way to say this name. And the uh, Czech way of saying? Podesky. Who? <laughs> this like is that. why we say Father Chris. Uh, <laughs> Podesky. Podesky. That H-A-J in the middle, it makes an I sound in Czech. Uh, if, you were, uh, if we were using Cyrillic alphabet, and it would all make sense, but... 
we're using non we're using yeah, the alphabet as we know it and it doesn't make any sense at all yeah. <laughs> well um, i think i'll just say as father yes. said in the father chris this is why i go by father chris segment um talking about the the mass and the liturgy and the culture that it came from um and how it came from um he were the point where he left off was the uh, Semitic Jewish um, mm -hmm. culture. So we're going to pick up there and then talk a little bit more about the culture as the mass developed and sure. as your your series developed. Sure, but I mean, I do want to reemphasize. I mean, it's it's a really powerful thought to understand that those cultures that I mentioned before, the ancient Jewish Semitic covenant culture, and then specifically that Jewish first century culture that our Lord, first century BC, first century AD culture that our Lord came into that those are part of divine revelation. That's a really awesome thought. You don't really hear divine revelation talked about like that, but it still very much affects us. I, I mentioned it when I do the classes. You know, the whole reason why do priests hold are supposed to hold their hands up? Well, when do you, that's part of oath swearing. I mean, when when do you raise your right hand? You go into court and this is, oh, all, really? and this is all the priest is doing. He's raising both hands. You're calling heaven into witness um, when he's in the orons or the prayer position. That's what the basis of that is. And, it's, and again, it beckons to why I did this whole thing because, uh, and we'll eventually get there, but we're we, we're losing, have lost huge chunks of our interior Latin Rite culture to the point that you have a lot of priests who hold their hands in all kinds of crazy positions because we've lost, we're losing this. And some of this is, like I say, part of divine revelation. So you're so, not surrendering. You're, you're not surrendering. Norm, you're not both. like holding your hands out to catch. You're putting your arms out like Jesus on the cross. And you see guys doing all of these things. You're in a prayer. You're you're in an oath swearing position, putting your hands, calling heaven into witness. That's all you're doing. So I want to do sort of the Thomistic thing here and define terms. So I've always thought of culture as coming from cultus and basically being driven by religion. It seems that we're. I don't. I guess I just don't know how you're defining culture. That. Um, well, I mean. Uh, uh, it is, I mean, the word is related to that, certainly. Uh, but, I mean, you have secular culture that isn't, per se, driven by religion. Well, unless you consider atheism as your religion, which you probably, <laughs> which atheists should. But um, it, it's more to the point. I mean, culture is the milieu and the, and the way you do things and process things, you know, a, 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 as a human. And I divided culture. When I did this class, I started by talking about four elements of culture. That when we, when... Whenever you look at a culture, if you do a foreign language class, you, you look at someone's culture and you always go kind of go through these four elements. One is language. When you look at a culture, you look at the language. Mm -hmm. One is art. Sure. That includes, includes architecture and music and then all the other, you know, painting art and all the forms of art and artwork. Um, one is history and legend. Your history and legend forms your... And le there's nothing wrong with a good legend, you know, like... George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. Everybody knows it's not it's not a real story, but it's a great legend, and it helps. Or the Paul Bunyan legends. They form the culture. They help form the culture. Um, and uh, oh gosh, which one? Did, oh, and Ta then the last taboos. one is taboos. What? How do you give respect, or how do you give disrespect? What is reverential? What is dishonorable? Um, and every time you study a culture, you ha you have to study that. And, and every um, and those forth, and, and that can come sometimes from religion, that can come from law, They're, sometimes those are put into law, but I mean, those four kind of, kind of as general categories, and certainly there's some wash in between them, but when you look at a culture, you look at those four elements, and you kind of put them together, and you have someone's culture, their milieu, sure. as about how they process and do things. Um, and, and like I say, the mass is this layered thing. You've got the ancient 
Semitic covenant culture. You've got the first century Jewish culture, um, which my main point of that whole pro of that whole class was that basically what the apostles and our Lord did was they took first century Judaism with the temple and the high priesthood, Christianized it, and you've got the Catholic Church. Jesus is God. The high priest is the Pope. The other high priests surrounding the high priest family are the the bishops. The Levites are the other priests. I mean, you just take you just take first century Judaism so and Christianize answer, it. The answer to the question, "Where did all the Jews go?" is they became Catholic. Well, or Christian. And yeah, well, yes, the first Christians were all, are, yeah, were all Jewish. The very first ones, but then also. What did those first century first Christians do when they were for, when they were doing religion? Of course, it looked like what they had been doing. They took first century Judaism and Christianized it. Um, it yeah, and so I mean that's that's the basis of the Catholic. That's why so many of the things that we do as Catholics, when you look at the roots of them, they're Jewish. Sure, um, sure, tons of them. Right. Uh, I'm not the first one to say that. There's a lot of people who've realized that when they study these things. Was it uh, Shri that has the book, the roots, Jewish roots of the Catholic faith? Right. No, it's not Shri. It's it's Brad Petrie. Brad Petrie. Brad, Brad Petrie. 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 Well, there's the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. He's got Jewish roots of of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's, like I say, Scott Hans, Ted Shri has done work on these things. I mean, but it's, it's amazing. All these different authors. There's many of them contemporary and even older. That yeah, you start looking at the roots of these things, and it's Jewish. You find them in the Old Testament. You find them in the Bible in different places. Um, yeah, there's many ways in which you can look at the Catholic Church simply as Christianized first century Jewish culture. The church is the temple um, that we go to to worship. Uh, yeah, so like I say, um, and worship in the temple implies sacrifice. And well, yes, if you have priests and you have temple, then you're doing sacrifice. Um, as in, as Catholics, we didn't do away with sacrifice. Rather, it's Christian sacrifice rather than the Jewish sacrifices. Um, because obviously, New Testament says this over and over, and we all believe this as Christians, Christ's sacrifice fulfills all the Old Testament types. It's the ultimate anti-type that fulfills all the Old Testament types of, of sacrifice and worship. Mm-hmm. Um, and it used to be called the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It still, still is. It still is, but there's also a little bit of a twisting that it's um, a meal, and well, then you lose the idea of a there's sacrifice. Always, no. The, in many of the Jewish sacrifices, not all, but many of them, there were there were always meal elements. You all because you did this. The reasons, I mean, if we want to get into this, there, there were many reasons why you did sacrifice in the Old Testament world. I mean, you formed covenant, you formed family bonds by doing, you cut, literally cut a covenant. Um, you could renew a covenant later with other people or just to renew it among yourselves. Um, you also remember they're coming out of Egypt worshiping cattle, sheep, and goats. So what were you ordered to sacrifice? Cattle, sheep, and goats. You're killing idols as you do this. Which are very expensive because in that world your animals are your currency. I mean that's that is like your your Lamborghini. I mean that's your high end sure. materials or right. your animals. Um, so this isn't cheap. Um, uh, but and so and, and some of some of these sacrifice and also you killed animals because you couldn't offer yourself because we were sinful. The animals are innocent. The animals were the substitute. Which is why when Christ comes and forgives our sins, we can now offer ourselves the way God always designed us to. Why we call him a scapegoat. Yeah, well, they were sca- yeah, the scapegoat was one of the many yeah, sacrifices. Yeah. But yeah, um, so I'm thinking through what you're saying here and what I've found 
and transitioning and going to the Latin Mass now is, I think what happens is the primary and the secondary, in my mind, get get inverted in the Novus Ordo with the priest facing the, you know, and everything's being read at the uh, congregation instead of towards God. It just feels like it's more for more about the sacrifice in the Latin Mass and secondarily mm-hmm. about the meal. And the inverse of that seems to be true to me at, at the Novus Ordo, well, where you're... not supposed to be. It's not uh, supposed to be, right? It's not supposed to be, but that's... every Mass is offered to God, and if it's not, then you actually have idolatry going on. Mm-hmm. So then um, the facing of the congregation, to me, it, turning the priest around and facing the congregation makes it about the community rather than sure. Well, no, God. and that's... was the in, um, in one sense... And like I say, I do go into that in the classes, and we're kind of skipping ahead. So I'm going to take a step back, and then maybe if I remember, come back because my memory is about is, is Swiss cheese. More, <laughs> sometimes it's more Swiss than it is cheese. Um, but um, because with those two kind of cultures as, as base, then you then we talked about the Latin culture on top, the Greco the Greco Roman culture that certainly is part with for us as Roman rite is then how we do liturgy because there are other cultures. I mean, you've got there are other rites. People don't always know that, that there are, I think, 22 or 26 right, right. rites in the Catholic Church. There's five Latin masses. Five five, Roma, yeah, five Western five ones Western that would Latin, look back at the Greco-Roman, yeah. especially through the Roman Latin eyes that are... But, I mean, there are others that use Arabic or Aramaic or Greek. A lot of them use Greek or, in the East, Old Slavic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so they have other cultures through which they developed ways to express the liturgy. Um uh, they do the same things, very similar things. They do the same. The basic parts of the mass are all the same. Where you come in and even sign of the cross and readings and and the Eucharistic prayer and communion. I mean, you'd recognize the parts of the mass, but at the same time, the, they don't do the glory to God. That's a Roman thing. I mean, that that prayer developed in the West, not right. in the East. Um, there are some other prayers, you know, that develop how how you do the offering of the gifts and. How you do the petitions, how you do some of these things is different east and west and, and developed along different lines. Um, the one thing I will say, in many of the eastern churches, particularly, uh, well, the Orthodox, but not just the Orthodox, the eastern churches, the eastern Catholic churches, or the eastern ones where they do uh, mass with a different culture, they often, through history, have not really simplified their liturgy. They just add. <laughs> Which is why, if you go to an Eastern Rite liturgy, you can be there for an hour and a half, two hours. Wow! Um, because where in the West we do have a tradition, multiple times through history, where they have kind of said, "Okay, let's pare this back." Okay, let's pare this back. Um, Council of Trent, they did it there. There were other, there were more than five Western rites at the time. Actually, the, there was the Gallican Rite. There was uh, one in Spain. Moraz, I can't say that word. Razabic. I'm not saying that word rightly, correctly. Um, but there were other Western rites that they paired back at the time of the Council of Trent. Um, so the whole idea of the West looking at its liturgy and trying to pare it back is not without precedent. Um, uh, so Trent actually, the the Tridentine rite that we uh, some of us grew up with and, and remember. Well, the Mass that was more similar to the Mass they had. In, yeah, because yeah. the liturgy never stays still. There's always tweaking going on. Right. If you go through history... Now, sometimes it's very minor, but yeah, there's always tweaking going on to liturgy down through the ages. And I I talked about that too, yeah, because um, I talked about the liturgical movement that started in the 19th century, where, yeah, even Mass, how, like we talk, you said the Mass you went to as council. Well, the Mass in the 19th century, middle of the 19th century, and what you probably grew up with would have been looked very different even then. 
because the liturgical movement had gotten going um, in the 19th century in Europe, and then in about 1910 through the Benedictines came to the United States. And the but the impetus of that was always instead of just praying at mass, pray the mass. And this, but this was this liturgical movement led right into the Second Vatican Council, and popes were behind it. Lots of big, huge conferences worldwide going on about how do we get deeper into the mass and get the average person to pray the mass better, not just pray at mass. And and I would say, yeah, I mean, that's something you don't hear about anymore, and it, it's, it's sad. I talk about this very much in the five-part series because I even talk, give some recommendations about how you how we can do this better. How do you pray at mass better? Because that pray the mass better. What does that mean? Pray the mass. Because you're seeing the ultimate prayer. It's Christ's sacrifice being sure. made present. Well, we shouldn't just be. I mean, praying our rosaries is great, and this is where you can instantly see where this is horribly misinterpreted at the time of the Second Vatican Council, where they said you shouldn't be doing devotions at mass. You should be praying the prayer right in front of you. You should be praying the mass with the priest i'll talk about that more in a second but this is where guys just heard oh they shouldn't be praying rosaries and they came out horribly anti-devotional out of seminaries is that where that came from that's this is where it came from it came out of this misunderstanding of both vatican ii because vatican ii actually encourages devotions sure that are linked to the liturgy but instead, all they heard, all some heard, was everything. All these all these people coming in and praying the rosaries during mass, and they they started making fun of them with different. I'm not going to say the terms, and and they just came out horribly anti-devotional and out of these seminaries in the late 60s into the early 70s, and that was not the intention of the council. The council was do these devotions, especially the ones that come from the liturgy. Uh, like Eucharistic Adoration and lead you back mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. the liturgy, like praying the, like prayer, reading the Bible, like praying the rosary, which meditating on the mysteries of Christ, which kind of comes from the liturgy and takes you back into it. I would say the Divine Mercy Chaplet, you know, is very much part of this but, offering Jesus to God. But how does one, the laity attending your Mass or any Mass, mm-hmm. Father, how when you say, don't pray at the Mass, but Pray, pray the, the mass. mass. Yeah, that is the key. How does that manifest itself? What does I, that look like? I would say, first of all, how do we understand? This means that every baptized person is to be offering Jesus Christ to God the Father when they come to Mass. Every single one. This is something Vatican II says very clearly. This is this is what we are supposed to be doing. This is part of the priesthood of the baptized, is that we all everybody there is to be offering the whole christ and when you come to mass you see the whole christ you see the priest the alt the alt christ is the altar christ is the priest christ is the sacrifice christ is the prayers christ is the word is the readings christ is the you're to be offering the whole thing to god the father but you don't but what the difference between the ministerial priest and the priest of the baptized is the the best way to see this is jesus and mary at the cross mary offered her son to god the father at the cross but she did so passively. It doesn't mean she wasn't doing anything, but Christ is the prime actor. And then being there, she could then kind of, as it were, first receive it, see it, receive it, and then offer him from her heart and her prayer and her soul. This is how the, the every baptized person is supposed to be offering Christ when they go to Mass, the whole Mass, everything you're seeing there, the things, the actions, the words, you'd be offering but we but the average baptized person does so passively like mary at the foot of the cross uh, where the priest this is the phenomenal crazy theology of the priesthood the priest participates with christ in him actively offering mm-hmm. uh the sacrifice where the lay the priest of the baptized 
passively not passively say we're not doing anything but yeah it has to happen first and then i can offer it with but i can offer it secondarily as it does it make sense and you do this um like i say first by intending it um by intending to offer christ so much of prayer is intention in that sense but also you do it through you can um quiet like i say this is through prayerful listening when it comes to like hearing the readings sure um i gave some just little helpful little mental things you can say uh like when the eucharistic prayer is going on like you can just say the word amen amen to like every line because understand when the priest is offering the mass he's offering all of it including his own priesthood he's offering and he's offering the church in heaven if you go through eucharistic prayer he's offering the saints in heaven he's offering the church militant on earth he's offering he's remember we remember we remember the dead he's offering the whole whole body of christ the priest is offering everything he's offering the whole christ to God the Father, including the sacrifice and the altar and his own priesthood. He's offering the whole thing, including the people there. Um, and then so the lay people, when the priest is actively doing that, they can passively do that. It, like I say, the Divine Mercy Chaplet is based on this. Eternal Father, I offer you the body and blood, soul and do. How do we say that? How exactly. can we say that? Exactly. We're not doing math. But you can do it passively, what Christ does actively. And this is what you're seeing when the priest offers. That's Christ actively offering this is what the priesthood is father chris padaski wow that was a great segment segment. (laughs) we're going to come back with segment three uh right after these announcements we're going to talk about the uh, five classes we started we got in there and we didn't get far right after this on fm 98.3 kcrd Hi again, everybody. We're back in the studio with Father Chris Podaski. Boy, you burned oxygen on that one, Father. <laughs> oh, I'm a preacher. You get me using oxygen, I will take it all, man. <laughs> so we wanted to get into your, your classes, your five classes that were at 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoons in July. By the way, uh, Lesser, we've captured those audio yes. tracks. Yep. And we're going we're gonna to play those. Do you, we don't have a schedule yet, Colleen. Not yet, but we well, We're going to play them, Father. And maybe <laughs> we should back into your classrooms, because uh, you were talking about Ways to segment pray the two, mass. How, to, how to pray the Mass, yeah. not pray at the Mass. And your fifth talk, your fifth class in July out at the Basilica was a beautiful Mass. Well, actually, that was part six. That was part six? Yeah, I did five classes, and then I was going to do just four and do Mass. And we, I realized, oh, I had enough to talk about. Like I say, I like to use oxygen. So, <laughs> I, we I, so we did five full classes, and then we figured out, we and we did a Mass. So that was really kind of part six a couple of weeks later. What, talk about the sixth segment, then, when you did the Mass, and then... Weave back into one through five. What, what did that? What did <laughs> well, that look like? Actually, you got seventeen for, minutes. Bef- well, before I forget, let's just talk about the ways we pray the mass, and then I'll come back to that because so, otherwise those will get lost, and those are really important. I'm just going to tell you the ways that, like I say, you can when you're listening to the Eucharistic prayer or the prayers of the church. Like I say, just say the word Amen, 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 because then so how many times do we then end with a uniform Amen? Everybody sure. together at the end. Um, but also, I would say there's a few expressions like when I'm concelebrating or that go through my head, like exaudino domine, which is hear us, O Lord, graciously hear us, O Lord, or uh, gratias, 
Gratius Ajimus Tibi Domine, you know, we give you thanks, O Lord, mm-hmm. for what we're, you know, what I'm seeing, uh, um, or miserere nobis domine, um, you know, have mercy. have mercy on us, Lord. To just say those expressions underneath while you're listening to what the priest is actively doing, or you can even during the Eucharistic prayer, without anybody hearing you, I want to emphasize that, <laughs> but you can go ahead and mouth the words underneath, you know, what the, let the yeah, nobody should even hear you whispering, I want to emphasize that, but it is actually okay as long as the priest is first <laughs> mm. to kind of like mentally going through word by word. And even if you're, if, like say, if you completely silently inhale rather than exhale, like do those words after him so that, yeah, you're offering what is actively being there and you're doing it so secondarily. That is okay. Um, Cause some people do that. Some people do that now, uh, but these are just ways that we, yeah, that we can, we offer, we participate, that we can be offering what's going on right in front of us. Like I say, in addition to an intent, and this is also why coming before church and saying a couple of prayers is important. That we're, I mean, the priests try to, I always try to do prayers before Mass. Get yourself ready, you know, make yourself ready for the offering. And also, I would say, just as you're going through the whole Mass, I offer this to you, Lord. I, you know, give him the readings, give him what's going, give him the homily, even, even if it's horrible, give it to him. <laughs> Uh, give him all everything that's going on. As so you're really touching prayer. on a lot of stuff because I'm sure we've all run into him, Colleen. Mm-hmm. Here, I don't go to church. I get nothing out of the mass. Yeah, that's, what, what say you to them? Uh, well, I would say the point is your, your first job as a baptized Catholic is to offer the mass rather than to receive. Your first job, we you're, like Mary, you're to be there offering Christ to God the Father, and that is the high point of the of the priesthood of the baptized to be offering christ to god the father to participate in that offering of christ to god this is also why you can receive the gifts you can receive communion because you can't consecrate but you can actually receive the gift the heavenly gifts while here on earth because you're participating in the priesthood of christ in that moment it's the high point of the baptismal priesthood i, I said off air yeah that our, our lack of understanding of the baptismal priesthood, our, our lack of teaching it, both hurts our understanding of the active priesthood, but even our understanding of ourselves as Christians. That it's, it's, it's to our detriment. And Peter and Paul, when you read their letters, they take this as normal baptismal catechesis and understanding of Christianity. Um, that, I, I'm reminded of the, of the preface prayer. I think it's the preface prayer. Lift up your hearts. We yeah. Lift them to the Lord. Lifting, yeah. Go through the, that prayer and, and call in prayer, Father. For well, the Lord be with you and with your, with spirit. your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We have lifted them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and, and just. just. Yeah. And what do you say then? Well, then you go into the whole preface, which is usually uh, the, you know. You, you, but the, the words most often or always, it is truly it, it, right it is, and it, just. It is right and just. Yeah. Always and, and everywhere. everywhere. To give you thanks, Almighty God, through Christ your Son. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, and you you and the preface is actually the first part of the Eucharistic prayer. Right. We don't kneel for it necessarily, but it is actually the first part of of the Eucharistic. But doesn't prayer. that call and chant say everything about what's supposed to be going? And on? it also says if it's a call and chant and it's part of the Eucharistic prayer that everybody's supposed to be participating in this. Mm-hmm. And and everybody says the Amen at the end, you know. It's the great, it is the great amen. That's why I say you can say amen to just every line and every word that's going on at Mass. 
Um, so now I can come back around, though. I, I wanted to talk about that <laughs> before we right, lost right. it. Um, to, uh, oh, what was your question? It was, um, was it about the five different classes we did? Yeah, or? the five classes, and then you culminated with the sixth beautiful the, mass. The mass. So, we, so I mentioned the first two. The, the third one was about the Greco-Roman culture layers, and I didn't talk about everything with that, but I talked about some things, the Greco-Roman, that are important for us as Roman Rite Catholics. Um, and then the fourth one was really about the liturgical movement. I jumped ahead um, from there. Yeah, from that third one, I, I jumped a couple thousand, uh, 1,500 years, kind of. But uh, I, I jumped ahead, and we talked about the, what the liturgical movement is and was going right into the Second Vatican Council. And it was pretty universally acclaimed. I mean, uh, the renewal of Holy Week in the 1950s came right out of the liturgical movement, which was largely hugely successful i mean got i mean this is where kind of renewal of holy thursday and thursday evening and good friday on friday afternoon and holy saturday the huge vigil mass got all got renewed and got people participating and was wildly successful to the point that most people don't remember what it was like before that um uh, and that happened in books that's why i say the liturgy is never static it's it's been moving it's always being tweaked and moved forward as i would say especially in the last 200 years um and it's really coming out of that and this is and Pius the 12th was on board with this and so was Pius St. Pius the 10th I mean there's many of the popes right. of the 20th century into this and this is why you in that context you have to read the first document from the Second Vatican Council was Sancro Sanctum Concilium on the liturgy coming right out of all these many discussions on the mass and the liturgy leading up to that point um what was the end game, do you think, of of sacrosanctum, well, again, concilium, and 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 the the Holy Week renewal in the fifties? What what the, where the, were we trying the, to go? The the goal was to do exactly what I've been talking about here, which was to, that activation of the priesthood of the baptized to fully participate in the offering of Christ and really understand. Like I say, we we've taught this so horribly, or we we never some dots were just never connected. They said, well, yeah, it's all about the people. Well people how i mean it's about the uh, getting them to be more you know they talked about full active participate participation but it really means full actual particip actually participating in the mass this doesn't mean you're doing something physical it doesn't mean you have to be a lector it means you're is in your pews you're actually offering the mass but isn't that the great misunderstanding they think i've yeah i've i've, I've got to be an usher, I've got to be a reader, I've got to do something. If I'm sitting in the yeah. pew, I'm not doing anything. And that's, and well, and if you're not doing anything, that's your, <laughs> you're supposed to, like I say, Mary, you can say Mary at the foot of the cross, was she doing anything? Yeah, she was. She was offering her son to the Father, wreckingly so. And this is where we're all supposed to be when we go to Mass. Um, and like I say, this is where the impetus for what I think we're, where the council fathers wanted to take us and then of course yeah the complete misunderstanding of that and where we actually kind of went it, that's why i say you can very much say there and i'm not the first to say it pope benedict said it, there were really two councils and you know there was a council of the media and there was a council of the church fathers and the documents mm -hmm. um and uh and we can still kind of say that we and i talk about this you know you can still see, 
you can still see this. And in so many of our reactions to the Second Vatican Council, I would say this is true for the Synod to some degree. Even though the Synod, yes, has been very poorly defined and therefore and it somewhat poorly executed. And you can see that because they keep having delays. Oh, we need to do this. We need to do that. So, But you get the same reactions where the church sees where the people where on the one you have people saying everything is changing and so you end up with these wings we love the changes we hate the changes when the church says no this is the actual direction is you have to read this in continuity and go from where we have been and what we're trying to do going forward i think the synod is kind of the same thing because there's many people saying the same things about the synod i that everything's gonna they're using this to change everything we hate it we love it and this you see the same two wings that you had sure. 60 years ago when again the Pope has like looked at Germany and yelled at them. No, we're not changing all that stuff. Stop it. <laughs> right, right. You know, um, you have to again keep it in continuity. This is not about. It's been said many times from Rome. This is not about changing doctrine and dogma. This is a. And now, like I said, what this, is it about that? Is, the it, synod, is everything coming out of Germany, Father? Is it? No. Is it five hundred years of? <laughs> no. Well, who knows what's coming out of Germany? Well, but um, I, th I mean, all I can do, like I say, the synod has been very poorly defined from the beginning. That's been part of its problem. Now, so I can just give you my opinion, since as I think has been poorly defined, and it has been poorly executed because they have like slowed it down, or we're gonna and delayed. They realize they need to do different things. So uh, I don't think I'm saying something horribly out of school when I say it's been somewhat poorly executed because they realized they had to make changes as they were doing it. Sure. Um, I think, and this is just me, and maybe this is Pollyannish. Sure, fine. I'd rather be positive than negative. But I think if the church is getting ready to grow again um, and get bigger, we're already like 1.2, 1.3 billion people. Right. You know, we have to figure out a way to talk inside the church that that a poor woman in Ecuador in the mountains can speak her and the church in some way can listen. Um synod why is uh, that important father why I think is it it's important, important for everybody with i think the synod is taught is about being able to speak in this is again we're way far away from these classes but i think it's it's about being able to speak interiorly that, that we have to have a way to bowl because it's about love if the church is really about love then we have to have a way for everyone to be able to speak and but that also means for everybody having to listen anybody who's married knows this <laughs> That it's sure. not just about getting your opinions out there. You have to probably work twice as hard or three times to listen to what the other one is saying. And this is not about changing anything. It's it's simply about, you know, we need the interior dialogue as much as we also need to, yes, be evangelistic and taking Christ outward as well. Um, but like I, I think, I guess this is just my opinion, and you can have a different one. And go for it but that's just my opinion i think that's what they're because they keep talking about listening and dialogue and it's like so what well if it's about love if you put everything back into the context of christian love we should talk and listen to each other and i i do think as catholics we don't always do a good job of that interiorly sure. um and 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 what would be the official way in a church official way from the vatican that we get a listening session that's what a synod is sure um and that's why it was supposed to be a synod on synodality. <laughs> oh. um, a, a listening session on listening sessions. <laughs> so uh, I have, I'll bring us kind of a little bit back on topic here, but yeah. one overarching question that has kind of been ringing through my head throughout this whole 
talk is how are we losing the culture and why are we losing yeah, well, the culture? And I would say, and I say this very openly, I think it's very clear, and I all kinds of anecdotal stories to back this up. When the new book, liturgical books came out in 1970, we didn't change doctrine and dogma. We didn't. Um, yes, rubrics changed some, but I mean, you know, you can do, and I, this is why I did part six was, I, I, part four was, the fourth class was talking about the liturgical movement. Part five was talking about our current state and Vatican II and where we're at now. And then, like, say, part six, as it were, was was actually doing, using our books today, the, the Missal of 2000, excuse me, the Missal of 2002, and doing a mass with lit, full liturgical culture, as or full Latin culture. I, did, it was a, I called it a Latin culture mass, but doing everything. Um, what happened was, I think it's very clear in 1970, that me, coming with very bad catechesis, and the priests and the religious led it, was this rejection of the Latin Rite culture. I don't think that's deniable. I, I really don't think it's deniable. They said, no Latin. Latin is evil. Every you know The culture was chucked inside the church. You know, no statues, no devotion. You hear, you know, we're all to do this now and not that. I mean, if there was one thing that was chucked in 1970 when the new liturgical books came out was the culture of the Roman Rite. More more than anything else, it was the culture of how we do things. Sure. Um, yeah, and, and that was... Chant. Well, chant. I mean, we, yeah, we had to change all how we do all this. They... It, it was this anti-Latin Rite culture movement. Really, like they say, we were going through a cultural revolution outside the church in the secular world in this coming out of the sixties and seventies, and then they just what do you know? The people of the time brought that inside the church, and, and there was a rejection of Latin Rite culture um, in the West, in specifically in the United States. Here, I know that from, but I think probably in the West in general, in many places. So, and there's moral elements to that too. Remember, cultures about taboos. People had already been rejecting humanae vitae. They had already been rejecting the moral. Well, you start doing that, it's not that hard to start rejecting other bits that are cultural. We didn't reject. We didn't change doctrine and dogma, but how many people stopped practicing it? Right. You know, that's culture. That's practice. That's how you're living your life. That's your milieu now. Um, I'm still struggling with, so how much does the mass influence this? Because I, I kind of have a, a little bit of a theory in that with the new rubrics we've seen, and I actually asked for this book from you, Brad, because of it, but in that rubric there's a whole bunch of places where it says the priest says this or something like it. Well, the it doesn't say that anymore. They oh, okay. tightened it up in the Missal of 2002. Okay. The they, they, gave, they gave us. They gave. They gave a lot of those places in, in Missile nineteen seventy. It had some of those. They took a lot of those out. <laughs> okay. That's like, if it fact, pleases, they took if pretty it, much almost all of those out. Just a lot of or or this. I don't know where this came yeah. from. I guess the time frame on that. You would know better than me. But yeah. Well, guys, uh, we're running out of yeah. oxygen. <laughs> it's because you let me talk, man. Feel like a scuba diver, Father. Here, the the, the uh, bells going off on our tanks. Well, you're going to play the classes, and you can listen to them. So we've got we've got five classes yeah. and a bonus sixth mass. A mass, and, and like I say, I'm I did it. I, I also wanted to do it as an outreach. I understand, certainly, and, and you know, rightly or wrongly, again, and all I can do, I say this in these classes. I can be Socrates. I can ask certain questions. The main question, the main drive for me for doing these classes in the fifth episode, I say this, is we're, we're, we're now we're so weak in our interior Latin culture. They so rebelled against it 
So what culture is inside, are we using? And in many cases, you know, we're using music that sounds like our, you know, the culture outside the church that it's, that, and so we have, and see that interior culture was always the filter. And when that's not there, you don't have a filter. So sometimes elements that shouldn't be brought into the mass get brought into the mass because you've lost your interior filter when you've lost your Latin right culture. Um, and so, yeah, somebody in the church going up, I can be a Socrates and say, do we want Latin Rite culture in our liturgy or not? And I can't answer that. So that has to get answered by somebody at a higher pay grade than me. Um, we're going to end right there on that note or give you a raise, one or the other. Father. <laughs> I'll take the raise. Father, Father Chris. <laughs> there goes our fundraising. <laughs> All right, Father Chris Podaski's in the house. We're going we're gonna to get those five classes and the Mass on the air. Great. And we trust that you've put them into the system, Brad. Yep. The lesser here. Let's end. We usually end with a glory be, but uh, sure. it's not often we have a priest in the house to give us a blessing sure. and all of our listeners, Father, please. Sure. Well, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to, to the, the Holy, Holy Spirit, Spirit. As, as it was, was in the beginning, beginning is now, now and ever shall be. be. World without end. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with, with your spirit. spirit. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. 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 You're listening to The Chatter, brought to you by Hotworks on Holiday Drive. That's the only Holiday Drive with two L's in Dubuque. Tune in again next week. We love you.